Three weeks ago, we looked at ten spiritual gifts. Gifts that God has given us directly through His Son, Jesus, His grace, prayer, things that are indispensable to our well-being as those who are marching to Zion, as those who are on their way to their heavenly home. Uh, these ten spiritual gifts have shaped our life. But our God doesn't stop there. We looked last week at ten physical gifts God gives us. Things He gives us that we often, especially in this country of uh, bounty, uh, things we often overlook because we take them for granted. And the things such as clean water, food, clothing, that in the first century and still in other parts of this world and even parts of this country don't enjoy. Clean water is not a given in all parts of this country. I was reminded, I think, by Mary Gale, uh, Flint, Michigan, Jackson, Mississippi. It is not a given that their water is going to be clean. So every time we enjoy these basic things, and thank you, Nathaniel, for the, the pen distribution, uh, we ought to be truly thankful for them. But even then, our God does not stop blessing us. And this morning, we're going to look at unopened gifts. Five blessings from God that you perhaps did not know were blessings. Or you've never thought of them as blessings. These are not mysterious things that are hidden in some way, but they're things that God has allowed to be true in our lives in relation to Him, in life in general, that basically I see as great gifts to us. Um, we love obvious gifts. Um, I remember growing up at Christmas time, uh, my dad, who I learned was Santa at an early age, would come late at night and he would put all the gifts under the tree and uh, they were labeled with my, my gifts had my name on it and my sister, Cheryl, she had her gifts and my brother Grant, he had his gifts. And, uh, but there was sometimes a hidden gift. There was one that got stuck behind the tree and one that we hadn't seen and, and that was like a, a double blessing in a way. It was an unopened gift that had been accidentally left behind and simply not recognized as a gift. And if you ever received a gift uh, that someone gave you and they, they wanted to give it just to you but you didn't recognize it initially as a gift, it almost becomes a double gift because you know they gave it to you and you were not expecting it uh, per se. Well, this morning, we're going to look at five unopened gifts, things that I want us to see as gifts from God because they shape our lives for the better. Uh, there are more than just five, but five seem to be ones that we could focus on and appreciate. And here's the first, God allowing you to live one day at a time. If you have your Bible with you, or if you want to scroll along on your phone, or if you just want to listen, our first text is going to be James chapter uh, 4, verse 13 through 17. Here, uh, the text is a, it's a rebuke by the brother Lord James as he writes to those who might be presumptive about what the next day holds. Uh, the book of James is very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of different teachings on different subjects. And this particular text is on seeing tomorrow and how we look at life. And we're going to draw from it this point about living one day at a time. James says in chapter 4, verse 13, he starts out by saying this, Now listen. So he gets our attention. Now listen. You who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Verse 14, Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. 
What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. So then if you know the good you ought to do and don't do it, you sin. So this is a rebuking challenge on the part of James, but he brings out a truth about the way God has structured life that I think is worthy of our attention. He says again, verse 14, why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. God has deliberately structured our life so that we don't know for sure what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't even know for sure what's going to happen an hour from now. We don't know for sure what's going to happen 15 minutes from now. But we have a desire to know what's going to happen next. Think about psychics, uh, people that are paid to give their view of your life. Uh, uh, I won't make any big judgment upon that, but clearly in the Old Testament, people that were soothsayers, people that invented stories about what's going to happen were clearly condemned by God because only God's prophets were the ones who spoke to the future. And even then in general terms about what's going to be coming on the horizon. But as far as day-to-day -day living, James here says, we don't even know what is going to happen tomorrow in that God has not told us. A lot of people might want to go to a palm reader or they might want to go to someone to uh, impart tarot cards to them and read them because we want to know. People want to know about maybe a relationship they're in. Is this one it? Is this the person that you intend for me to have the Lord? Or they want to know about a job. Is this going to be the job I should take? And they want someone just to tell them what the future holds. Should I be with this person? Should I be with this job? Should I move here? Should I not move there? We want to know our future. But God simply allows us to live one day at a time. In fact, he gives a reason why in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, and it's all within the context of worry. He says, verse 34, Therefore do not worry about what? Tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I want you to think what a blessing about what a blessing it is that God lets us live one day at a time. What, is it, what if he told us that in 10 years we're going to be in an awful car accident where both legs would be broken and someone in the vehicle with us would lose their life? Well, he's letting us know the future, but what would the next 10 years be like? A foreboding sense of dread that we're one day closer to a very awful event. Or there be some other similar awful thing in our life that we just have to live with the day-to-day -day knowledge that it's coming. Or even some situation of great blessing that may come our way. A lot of our blessings, uh, our blessings because they're unexpected. We can experience them in the moment when a gift is given us. Imagine if just knowing someone's going to be giving you a gift every day. Like, uh, you're going to get just too used to it or you're not going to appreciate it. God allows us to live one day at a time, which means we ought to live life to the fullest. That doesn't mean live it up. <laughs> That's not what God's saying here, but we live for Him. We ought to wake up each morning being thankful for a new day, a new day that is not all already been predetermined as far as what's going to happen. Our choices will make up for the overwhelming most part how that day is going to go, our attitude, how we're going to deal with a coworker, how we're going to deal with a child, 
how we're going to deal with the neighbor. It's all a lot of times up to us and what we do and how we think about it. This is a blessing to live one day at a time, to not be weighed down by things we know are going to eventually happen. God blesses us with allowing us to live one day at a time. We're free of dread, and we're allowed to enjoy things as they happen. That is an unopened gift. Don't ever want to know what's going to happen tomorrow. That doesn't mean we don't plan. That doesn't mean that we just lay around waiting for things to happen. That is not what James is saying. But don't be presumptive or don't think you have to know what's going to happen five years from now or five days from now. Live one day at a time. Number two, another unopened an gift is this, God allowing your prayers to go unanswered. God allowing your prayers to go unanswered. We looked at this verse earlier regarding how God deals with our prayers. I want to look at it again uh, from a different angle. Uh, when I say earlier, it was a few weeks ago. But in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is talking about his life, and he's been challenged by some in the church in Corinth. Uh, he's been challenged concerning his apostleship and whether or not he belongs in this position of speaking for God. And, uh, to some, he doesn't appear to have the credentials. Some that are looking at him in a very worldly way. And He says in the beginning of chapter 12, I could boast about a lot of things. <laughs> and he, he cites about... Uh, how that he was caught up into the third heaven. That at one point, God had taken him to heaven, uh, at least in a vision, then he'd come back to earth. And things that are really a struggle. But he also talks about this, how that he's not to be arrogant about anything. And look what he cites here in verse 7. Just mid-sentence, it says, verse 7 of chapter 12, Or because of these surpassingly great revelations, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Verse 10, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am, what? Strong. I think I was talking with Eileen about this very text a few weeks ago. People that study the Bible closely have wrestled with what is this thorn in the flesh? What is this thing that he's afflicted with that he calls a messenger of Satan? Uh, people are divided over it. He doesn't say God sent it to him. He just calls it a messenger of Satan, which he, he believes is something bad in and of itself. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. And most people think it is something physical that he had to deal with. And its origin and how to interpret it in all different facets, he doesn't really go into much detail. He just wants it taken from him. And he's been doing just what you and I do when we feel like we have something that negatively affects us. We want it taken from us, whether it be financial difficulty, a, a certain pain, um, 
a medical condition of some kind. We want it taken away from. No one says, hey, bring on more pain. No one says, hey, I, I love being broke. Uh, uh, and Paul's not saying that either. He's not saying, hey, I love, I love trouble. Bring it on. The, the worse I'm off, the better I am. But he's simply acknowledging that, hey, when he prayed to the Lord three times it might be removed, the Lord actually answered him. And we usually don't get any answers, but the Lord answered the Apostle Paul, and he simply said, my grace is sufficient for you. That is, what I'm giving you in your life is enough to get by, and indirectly the answer to removal of that thorn was basically no. Christ communicated to him that I'm going to get you through while this still remains, and Paul interprets it, okay, that's the Lord's will. It's going to keep me humble, whatever it is. Just speculating, uh, twice in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul refers to what appears to be an eye affliction, how that he couldn't see properly, um, he had to write with big letters, and many think that's what it is. And he simply interprets here as something that keeps him humble. He says in verse uh, 9, he will boast all the more about his weaknesses, so that Christ's power might rest on him. Then eventually he ends in verse 10, uh, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Well, first of all, what, do you, what is he not saying? He's not saying the more worse off you are, the better off you'll be. He doesn't entertain that notion at all. But he does entertain the idea that sometimes things that are hurtful, sometimes things that are difficult, even painful, God allows them to stay. Or our prayers go unanswered because there will be more good that comes from it, staying or that request for removal not being answered, then there will be bad. I want you to think for a moment about the uncertainty of, of unanswered prayer. You might say, well, I don't know why God's not answering this prayer. I don't know why this hasn't been taken from me. I don't know why the situation hasn't been remedied. And, and that's a challenge. But just think of the worst more awful situation of not really believing in God, not knowing why you're here, not knowing where you're going, uh, and just living with life not having really any direction at all. We see those lives all the time. But here, even in unanswered prayer, you know, well, okay, God must have a reason. If I've prayed repeatedly for this situation to change in my life, and everyone has their own different circumstance, if you pray repeatedly for God to take something from you and it has not yet been taken and it's been quite a while, you can probably maybe switch tracks and think, well, what is God seeking to do in my life by having this prayer unanswered? Sometimes our greatest times of spiritual growth are when we're going through the most difficult circumstances. Sometimes our times of greatest spiritual growth are when we're going through the most difficult circumstances. Number one, because they force us to pray, which means they force us to be dependent upon God. The doctors don't have an answer. The money's not going to magically show up in our bank account. Estranged relationships don't magically fix themselves. Sometimes we're doing everything we can to fix something, but the other party is non-responsive but it forces us to be dependent upon God. I can't think of a time in my life when everything was going really well where I really grew a lot spiritually. 
Because I was just so comfortable and I was just basking in everything going right. And that's when I really grew spiritually. But I can point to times of great pain in my life. And I can point to things even now that are unanswered or unaddressed that always take me to God in prayer. Because I'm dependent upon Him to work in circumstances that I can't change. So these unanswered prayers, even though we might struggle with why something that's so painful hasn't been removed, it's also an opportunity for us to grow and become stronger. Because we can know this for sure, there's some reason why God's letting it stay there. We may not know that reason. And it's not just to hurt us. Our God is not trying to hurt us. He's trying to help us. So if we can think there's something good that God wants to bring out of this bad thing, that is to our benefit. So at times it's an unopened gift that our prayers haven't been answered. And sometimes it's just not yet. It's not the right time to answer that prayer because it's for our good and the good of others. And you think of the story of Joseph when he was imprisoned on a false accusation of rape. He was thrown into a pit by his brothers. God didn't answer those prayers immediately to get him out of the dungeon, but he put him in the right place at the right time to be a leader of Egypt to one day bring his family to Egypt during times of great famine. A great blessing happened because God said no to what he must have been praying for, that is, release from that torment. So God allowing your prayers to go unanswered is an unopened gift at times. Number three, and this is a close cousin to the second point, God allowing your hardships to stay. And there's, as I thought as I prepared, there's not a whole lot of difference between the second and third point, but there is somewhat that I think needs to be recognized. God allowing your hardships to stay at times can be a great unopened gift. The book of James. Uh, we'll go back to James. Now it's in chapter 1. I want to know the way James begins. We'll start with verse 1, and we'll see who he's writing to, and he gives allusion to their circumstance. James talks about their circumstance, but then notice the shocking thing he tells them in verse 2, right after he alludes to what he knows is their setting in life. James chapter 1, verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Let's just pause here. He calls these Christians the 12 tribes. Well, first of all, that, that's kind of a, an allusion to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was comprised, comprised of the 12 tribes of Jacob. So it's an allusion to God, simply a reference to God's people using this language from the Old Covenant. But this is the early church. He calls the 12 tribes of Israel, but then he says, who are scattered among the nations. The book of James most likely was written during a time of early Christian persecution. And remember in the book of Acts, when the persecution started in Jerusalem, early Christians scattered. Acts chapter 8, it says they scattered. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem, but the early church, they had to flee. They took advantage of the circumstance and taught other people when they moved to other places. But they had to leave, which means they left the comfort of home. They left the security of home. They left their jobs, everything that they were used to. They had to leave simply because they were persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. Well, notice the first thing James tells them about the fact that they're scattered, verse 2. James says, count it 
or consider it pure joy. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let's look at these statements here. Verse 12, verse 2, consider it pure joy. My brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. He doesn't say be happy about it. He doesn't say when you hear about a car accident, you ought to jump up and down and clap. That is the absolute wrong response. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying here when you consider it joy, consider that when bad things do come into your life, and you can call them bad, you can call them a messenger of Satan. That's what Paul did, 2 Corinthians 12. You then can begin to think, well, what am I going to do about this bad? I don't know why it's here. I don't know when the pain's going to end. But what am I going to do about it? Because God many times does not take things away that we would like taken away immediately. We're used to problems being fixed instantly. I don't know about you, but if the plumbing needs attention where I live or... My phone is not working. I want that fixed right away. And we live in an era where we can call someone usually, or we can get on to tech support, or we can, with me, if it's my phone, I just ask a student, and uh, they will help me fix my problem. But we're used to things being fixed quickly. There are times when there's heartbreak because it involves another person that's not cooperative. Or it involves, again, financial struggle, which causes pain and worry and uncertainty about what's going to happen, when those things stay one day, one week, or a month or two, it is a really, is a really big struggle to figure out what's going on there. But God's allowing it. Again, you think about whether it be prayers not being answered or simply the situation of pain staying, just think right with it, God's allowing this for something. God's allowing this for some kind of good that I don't recognize. Which again means that we've got to make the most of it. I've visited many people in the hospital. And all throughout my life, I've been in situations with other people that have gone through awful accidents, have got terrible diagnoses, have had people walk out of their lives, and they've had to now pick up the pieces and go onward. And they're never trying to pretend everything's okay. But they will say things like, the Lord has got me through things in the past and He will get me through this as well. They don't panic. They don't start running to things other than the Lord. And simply as they're dealing with this new life circumstance, they, became, they become a great model of how to handle difficulty to other people and starting with me as I visit them in the hospital room. And I think, how can you say that? How can you say that the Lord has got you through things in the past and He will through this now? Aren't you feeling worse than that? They just have this calm assurance that they will get through the uncertainty 
and the pain and awful things of life because the Lord has carried them through all throughout their life. And that's why sometimes it's a great joy to be around some of the older saints in the Lord, those who have lived a little bit. And they've become acquainted with pain and they know how to deal with things. They become a source of strength to others. God allows our hardships to stay for many reasons. But one of the biggest is that those who are younger or those who have not lived as wisely or have not depended upon the Lord as much need to see what depending upon the Lord looks like to get you through relational difficulties or to get you through hardships of some kind where it really is pushing you to the brink. How do you do that when you don't have an answer and you really don't know what will happen at the end of the month? Or when something's due by noon tomorrow and you're not sure how that problem is going to get worked out. God allows our hardships to stay, but never to hurt us, always to help us. Number four, God allowing others to help you. This is an unopened gift. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We've looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now we'll look at chapter 1. This is another amazing thing when you just think about it. I want to see what Paul says to the Corinthians in verses 3 and 4 of this first chapter. And we'll see this idea that God is allowing helping others to help you. Verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all, what? Comfort. Verse 4, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Let me just read verse 4 again. Who comforts us, that's God, in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Here we find that God is with us in our darkest moments. As Ricardo prayed, uh, he prayed Hebrews 13, verse 5, God will never leave us or forsake us. That is a, a scripture of great comfort. That even though you feel like you're all by yourself, you feel like you're alone, you're really not. That though people will come and go in our lives, either because of death or separation, or just moving of some kind, God is the one constant. He is the one that is there 24-7, 365. Amen. And even when we're going the wrong direction, He's there with us not to accommodate us or assist us with wrong choices, but he's there to pick us up when we're ready to turn around. God comforts us. God is there with us. He answers prayer. He responds in ways that we don't even see. But then there's a, a secondary reason why. He comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble. God wants what he is doing for us to be done for other people and he wants it to be done through us. Many times when affliction hits, 
when painful times have arrived at our doorstep, not only do we go into sometimes a panic, but eventually, once it's been a while, we will easily go into self-pity. And that's where Satan wants to take us. First panic, and then self-pity. Panic, because he wants us to think, well, God's not there, and I've got to go to a, a psychic to tell me what to do, or I've, I've got to do something sinful to remedy this problem. Or self-pity is, well, you haven't abandoned God, but you have now slumped into this, this mental state that woe is me, nothing ever goes right, why is it always me? Everybody else has things I want, but I don't have it. And that state of self-pity can be the worst. Because here, not only are you not appreciating what God has done, if others are part of that self-pity, and every time you get on the phone with them, and they're hearing within two minutes about how bad things are for you, and woe is me, and, and you're the believer, here Satan is knocking down people one after one through self-pity. It's an awful state. So what's the unopened gift here? The unopened gift is this. is when you find yourself afflicted. First, you take everything to the Lord in prayer. As Scripture tells us, and the great hymn. But as God comforts us through that process and comforts you through doing that, one of the first responses should be when you're feeling really bad about what's happening is, Get right to the pen and the card and write a note to someone who you know is hurting too. Write them a card saying, I know what you're going through. I appreciate it now because I'm going through something similar. But you're reaching out to someone to bring them comfort because God has brought you comfort by going to Him in prayer about this circumstance. Or going right to the phone. Maybe writing a card is not the quickest or easiest thing to do, but sometimes going to the phone or going to the text, instead of telling another person all about everything that's terrible in your life, call them to ask them about their life. And this is a way that God will comfort you in response, because a lot of times when awful things hit, we want to feel awful about them. But when we reach out to others in the times where we are needing comfort, that is a way God comforts us. When we reach out to others, during our times of discomfort, God brings us comfort. Because sometimes getting our mind off of ourselves is just what we need at that moment. We want to think, it's only me that's going through this. But when we reach out to others, all of a sudden we understand their struggle. And as we talked about last week, there are others that are always hurting worse than we are. That when we reach out to them, when we make phone calls, when we write cards, and when we see how they are doing instead of telling them how awful we are doing, when we reach out to help others, it's actually helping us. Amen. It's God's psychology. It's God's therapy. Reach out to someone else when you're feeling terrible about yourself. And that will be the best thing you could ever do. And it doesn't cost $150 an hour. You don't have to make an appointment three weeks from now with someone to sit and listen to you. Go right away to helping others and you will find yourself helped. Number five, God allowing you to know the future. You might say, wait a minute, I thought he doesn't tell us the future. He doesn't tell us tomorrow. He doesn't go around like a psychic telling us what's going to happen tomorrow, but he does tell us our future. He does tell us our future. 
For those who are believers, look what they are told. First of all, 2 Timothy 4.8, then we'll look at 1 John 5.13. 2 Timothy uh, 4.8, look what Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy is a preacher who is working with the church in Ephesus. Paul writes the second letter to him about what he ought to be teaching and how he ought to be handling the church. But he's, Paul is writing it from his own end of life. He knows his days are numbered. But notice what he says to Timothy. Verse 6. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. Verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Verse 8 now. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have longed for his appearing. Here the Apostle Paul is completely certain of what God's going to do for him at the end of his life. That there is in store for him this crown of righteousness. That's his home in heaven. But he says it's not only for me, but it's also for all who have longed for his appearing. But he words this in this language, verse 8, now there is in store for me. He is certain, not overconfident, not living fast and loose, knowing that this is going to happen. But he is confident in what the Lord has said about his life and what the Lord is doing through his grace that he can speak with absolute assurance about what his future is going to look like. Look at another text. The Apostle John writes in the 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. John writes, I write these things to you who what? Believe. This is only to believers. To you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you might know that you have what? Eternal life. With those who are in Christ, who have this relationship with God through the Son, Jesus Christ, they can live with certainty about their future, and God has told them the future. First, He's been absolutely upfront with us, we're going to die. We're going to die, or Christ is going to return first. But when Christ returns, those who have already died will meet Him in the air, be taken up into their eternal destiny. With those who are alive on the earth, same too. They will be caught up together with those and meet the Lord in the air. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We know we're all going to stand before God in judgment. But with Christ on our side, we're going to make it through that day. Not by our own goodness, but because of what Jesus has done and is doing and will do for us. We know that aspect of our future. We know we're going to be resurrected. That this life in this body is eventually going to be replaced with a body that will live forever in eternity, and it will be the best version of ourselves. And I'll be with our, we'll be with our God. We'll see Him face to face. He's going to wipe every tear from our eye. We know our future, and that shapes our today. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to have a bucket list of things we're trying to do before we kick the bucket. Because we think that this is all there is. It's not. <laughs> this is just the beginning. There's good things in this life, but the greatest things are yet to come. 
So we don't have to invest in all these things that are constantly passing or decaying. As Jesus said, where moth doth corrupt or people steal. We can live beyond this life. That doesn't mean be escapist from this life and pretend that things don't bother us or, or that we're untouched by this life. But we know the best is yet to come that God has in store. We know our future. Even though tomorrow is uncertain, eternity is not. Even though tomorrow is uncertain, eternity is not. We know where we're going. Again, as I like to allude to that great hymn, we're marching to Zion. We know where we're headed. We know what life's all about. And that gives us great security. It helps our day-to-day -day life. It helps our aging. It helps our decisions on what's important and what's not. All because we know what life is all about. We know where it's going. That's an unopened gift. If you don't know what's going to happen after the grave, this life ought to be terrifying. You ought to be scared to death every day. If you have no idea what's going to happen after you die, you ought to be scared. But for those in Christ... We have a confident, blessed assurance that all will be well. And as the great hymn goes, it is well with our soul, no matter what happens. That's an unopened gift. So know that though you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, you know your future. Amen. These are our five gifts that God allows to be true in our lives, and we probably don't think about it that much, how much it really changes everything. But as our life goes on today and the day to come, just... Refer back to these unopened gifts because you can always open them. They're always there to be opened, to be appreciated, to bless your life. And as your life is blessed, you will bless someone else's. Amen. Just a moment, we're going to sing a song to encourage us to embrace these gifts. All these gifts, every good and perfect gift, James says, is, comes from the Father above with whom there's no shadow of turning. We put our life in His hands, and everything changes. Maybe we be strengthened by this song and the words that are designed to shape our lives. Let's stand and sing together.